Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you'll find the three of us connecting across the ether for the first time in 2022. The Christmas baubles have been stowed away, the last mince pie has been eaten, the Yule log extinguished, but the pile of books on the table continues to grow. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And I'm Nikki Birch, the producer of Backlisted and co-host of Lotlisted. Yay! Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. And today it's just the three of us discussing the books we've been reading over the Christmas break, and we're calling it our winter reading special. (laughs) Not summer reading, everybody. Winter reading, do you see? Can we call it the winter of our reading special? Yes, let's call it that. It's the winter of our reading special. But before we get on to the books that we've been reading and you might enjoy reading in the months ahead, it's time for a quiz. Yay! <laughs> oh, Andy. Not a, no, don't worry, I didn't set this one. <laughs> Half you. an hour later. I like you. You didn't think that the last quiz was difficult, Andy. It was very amusing. You know what? I, we shouldn't get off topic immediately, but it really wasn't that hard. And all you people who've complained about it, have a word with yourselves. My best friend from school thought it was pretty easy. Top quizzes, Frank Cottrell Boyce and John Mitchinson would beg to disagree. But yeah, I, all right. That's that's fair. I'm that's still impressed fair. that I beat John Mitchinson in a quiz. There you go. Oh, unprecedented. You, it was, oh, it you was. did have a fellow of all souls. No, you didn't. You had no, Frank, obviously. You had the fellow of all I souls. The of all souls. <laughs> I did listen back to it and thought my glee at how hard it was was perhaps too apparent, <laughs> actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry about that, everybody. Fine, we loved it. Anyway, we've got a different quiz. And this is a quiz set by backlisted listener Edie, who is seven years old. Hello, Edie. Edie. Hello. Thanks, Edie. This is really great. Edie's mum, Carolyn, contacted us to say that Edie and her brother, Tom, both love reading and they read loads of books over the last year or two during lockdown. And that Edie has just published the first issue of a magazine called Books Are Us, and um, her mum sent me uh, a few photos of the, of the prototype issue, Books Are Us. Edie, it just looks brilliant. Amazing. Legend. So we, uh, what, thank you for sharing it with us. And on the front cover, it promises five things to read 
a book quiz, and much more. <laughs> so if you like backlisted listeners, make sure you get hold of a copy of Books Are Us because it's basically the same format, but better, better than us. Anyway, Edie's written us a quiz. Fantastic. And um, so I'm going to ask John and Nikki the questions. What's the it qu- on? Really good. It's a book quiz, Nikki. Perfect. Let's be honest, it's a big subject. <laughs> I w- what, what Edie is asking you for, guys, and it's first person to answer is fine is could we have the title of the book? That's all we want, just the title of the book. And the author, if you want to... Show off. Show off, yeah. (laughs) All right, so I'm just going to... And Edie's written a little blurb for each one. So I'm just going to read you Edie's blurb, and then you tell me what the book is. So question one, here we go. Father goes and comes back. Railway children. Yes, Nikki, it's the Railway Children by Inez, but John couldn't remember two weeks back. But that... (laughs) That is what it is. I've got the advantage of not having had COVID in the last yeah, two weeks. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. It's also... John's uh, off his game. Still everything to play for. Everything to play for. Okay, so that was great. Father goes and comes back. That's the Railway Children by E. Nesbitt. Question two. They become poor during the war. They become poor during the war. Carries war? Is that your answer, John? That is my answer, yeah. I'm afraid that's not correct. So I throw it over to Nikki Birch. They become poor during the war. Um, Nikki, I'd just like to say I had to ask Edie's mum what the answer to this was. They become. This is the hard question. I'm trying to think of. Uh, Which war? (laughs) I'm I'm afraid that stop quibbling (laughs) with a seven year old. They become poor during the war. I don't know. It's a classic, yeah. isn't it? It's another classic. Yeah. It's one of the most famous books for young people ever written. Not The Silver Sword? Not It's, um, it's not The it's Silver not Sword. It's not Swallows John. and Amazons. It's not Swallows it's not, and Amazons, they, Nikki. During no the war. war um, Do you give up? Yeah, go on. Edie, you got me and you got them. It's Little Women. Oh, my oh. God. <laughs> Do you know what? Brilliant. That's awful because I watched that last night. <laughs> Thing is, Shame on me. This is interesting, isn't it? Because war, I just think of Blitz yeah. and yeah. Doodlebugs. Yeah, and, me too. And kids ah. in short trousers and shrapnel and, and yeah, brilliant. Oh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Brilliant question. And so that, on to the third one. Yeah. It could still be a draw. Goes to wizarding school. Harry oh, Potter. Harry Potter. Oh! John Mitchell's. Oh, you got there. I will give you that. Yes, absolutely. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Yes, to to be be. fair, John, let's, let's, yeah, let's choose a specific book. But my goodness, what a brilliant quiz. Thank you. Thank you, Edie and Carolyn and Tom as well for listening to the show and for sending that in. It was brilliant. Superb. In fact, I'm going to steal that middle question. That's a really good question. It's a good question, isn't it? (laughs) It's really good. Um, also, we'd like to say uh, to everybody listening to this who listened to Christmas Day and sent the episode on the Railway Children, yeah, thank you. sent feedback about it. Uh, thank you very, very much. Thanks to Catherine and Frank for being the guests and to listeners for all the wonderful feedback. And also, we should just say uh, thank you, everyone who's listening to this. We hit a million downloads in a year last year. Um, which was it was it actually landed, didn't it, Nikki, on Christmas Day? Yeah, it's pretty. Amazing. I don't want to say that was the most magical thing about this Christmas, but <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't far off. 
so thanks very much, everybody. Uh, that was that's been brilliant. What shall we talk about on our winter reading special, everybody? We're going to talk about a few books, and we're not doing the normal thing of discussing one book. It's a bit like what have I been reading, but ad infinitum. Yeah, what have you been reading <laughs> this month? Is is the question? That's right. So shall I kick off? Yeah. Yeah. What have you been reading, Andy, this winter? Well, this winter, which people might like to read in the months ahead, I thought this would be a really nice opportunity to talk about a few books of poetry that I've been reading, because we don't often talk about poetry on Batlisted. And these are all new, published in 2021. And the first one I'm going to talk about is The Kids by Hannah Lowe, which uh, is published by Blood Axe. And last night it won the Costa, or the night before it won the Costa Poetry Award. And it's also shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. Uh, Hannah Lowe, I think this is her second or third volume. She taught, she was a teacher and she taught for a decade in an inner city London sixth form. And the kids of the title refers to her students, the teenagers that she taught. But the kids also mean the poems that she, she writes retrospectively about herself as a teenager in the 80s and 90s. And indeed, her own children, her kids, her own children. So there's a conversation going on between generations of young people, herself looking back, the children she taught, the teenagers she taught in school, and her own small son. It's a really lovely collection. And it's written in the form of sonnets, although I'm going to confess that I didn't know that when I was reading it. <laughs> it's the sort of poetic conceit that passed me by so in a sense it matters and it doesn't matter that it's written in sonnet form they're short really so i'll read you a few of them and i've chosen three that i feel give you a sense of have either of you read this book by the way no although it's on my list because i i I, yeah everything i've read about it makes me think i would love it i can see it being very popular it's very accessible and moving um and i so yeah I I would I I mean I recommend all the books that I'm going to talk about today otherwise I wouldn't be talking about them but I think you'll really like this. So this is the first one. This is called The Sixth Form Theatre Trip. Hmm. And it starts off with an epigraph, uh, an anonymous epigraph. Do I mean epigraph? Yes, I do. What does epigraph mean? A quote from somebody else. Okay. Not an epigram. That's why I was that was you know Let's not get bogged down in me thinking aloud. That would be terrible. Anyway, this is called The Sixth Form Theatre Trip. And the epigraph reads, Anonymous, this is more like bloody dog walking than teaching. (laughs) (laughs) You've got more dogs than you can count. Big dogs and small. One badass dog in headphones mooching up the aisle. A dog who smuggled in a hot dog. Two loving dogs, back row, already smooching. Some dogs are up on haunches, barking. A dog or two already dozing, heads in paws, dogs sighing and dreaming. The other theatre dogs look down their snouts. A pair of tutting chow-chows, some slony poodles in the box. But when the curtains lift and your dogs are hypnotised, Their ears like little hoisted sails, the wag of tails. Their shining dog hearts fling wide open. They know these words, these lines, 
memorized like buried bones. And don't you love your dogs? That's so good. Oh my God, that is, I get it now, the sixth form theatre trip when you've been studying that text forever and you finally go and see it. Amazing. Can hear another one? Yeah. Yeah. This one's called Peeps, as in Samuel Peeps. Yeah. The posh girls came and took a corner table, all lip gloss and ribbony hair, each with a fan of starry GCSEs, a summer of youth hostels in Europe behind them, and the future wide open to them like a rainbow parasol, or so I thought. It was Restoration Comedies, and I was reading the class an essay, and though I'd seen his name, I'd never heard it. Peppies. I said it. Peppies. Over and over, until one girl spoke up. Do you mean peeps? She said. Her voice pulled taut as a noose as if I were the girl and she the teacher. And what could I have said? I read on. Peppies. 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 <laughs> cool. Cool as the trickster. Ridiculous as the fool. <laughs> Brilliant. So there's one poem about her taking sixth formers to the theatre and another poem about her uh, being a sixth former. And then the final one I'd like to read is called Sonnet for Rosie. And um, this, this, it seems, brings both the previous things we've heard together. Sonnet for Rosie. That girl called Rosie, soft-spoken, shyly clever, always dressed in high tops, corduroys, a khaki bomber, and everywhere I saw her, kissing or holding the hand of a graceful black boy from the year above, turned out to be my old professor's daughter. I can't recall who told me. It doesn't matter. But how clearly I remember catching a bus to Stamford Hill to find his flat, short dress, red lips, and lost, I asked two men in big fur hats who looked straight through me, walking on. But I found his door, and upstairs, talked music, film, ate buttered toast, while a tiny girl called Rosie grabbed my book and crawled away across his kitchen floor. So it's all there, those generations of child and pupil and teacher. So that's uh, that's published by Blood Axe. That's called The Kids by Hannah Lowe. And uh, that's the first of my poetry recommendations today. John Mitchinson, what have you been reading over the last month for, in your in your sickbed? Well, I've, I've um, I always love to have a bit of a, a, a tackle, a, a big history book. At, um, Especially when I've got COVID and really ill. Especially when <laughs> yeah. I've been, let's be honest, I, I have been compromised. And um, and this the book that I chose is is it's already I think a bestseller kind of number one in prehistory on Amazon is a brilliant mind bending bit of history by David Graeber the late David Graeber anthropologist um, and one of the theorists behind the Occupy uh, movement and David Wengro an archaeologist and they have been working on this book for ten years or were working up, up to David 
Graeber's untimely death last year. And it is the most brilliant re-examination of, of, of the last sort of 30,000 years of human history, hmm. most of which has been obviously lived in, we had always traditionally been told, small family bands of hunter-gatherers, you know, kind of being small family bands of hunter-gatherers until uh, we discovered farming. And then farming, we started farming, and then we started to have to have cities, and then we started to have to have kings and laws and police and money. And so it's it's a kind of what if that isn't true? Because it isn't true, the archaeological evidence that we've amassed over the last uh, 50 years is beginning to show us that our, our vi whole vision of history is based on a sort of back formation that we assume that everything is led up to the to what we've got now. There wasn't, there is no possible alternative. This is this is what it's, the dynamic they say is a sort of flip flop between the Hobbesian idea of human history, which is that life is nasty, brutal, and short, and human beings are venal and unpleasant. I'll come on to that in a moment. And the Rousseauian idea that the noble savage, that we were the, the fall from grace, mm -hmm. you know, that we were we were once used to live in Eden and everybody got along. And they're just saying, this is check out the evidence, guys. The evidence doesn't suggest that. The evidence suggests that for uh, the, the much more complex and interesting uh, picture. And they have researched they I mean, it's just a phenomenal amount of research that's gone into it. But it's written in this, I'm going to read you a bit, it's written in this clear, quite punchy, I mean, I, you could give this to anybody, big kind of capital letters at the beginning of each each small section saying, you know, ex exactly why they're... Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm totally in love with this book. It's the, it's the best history book I've read for a long, long time. How, how long did you say it was? <laughs> well, it's about, <laughs> it is about 700 pages long. But quite a but lot how of many those, years' work is it, though? It's, it's like 10 years, and quite, there's quite work, a right? lot of footnotes. Yeah. I think the text runs to about 560 pages. And to say that I devoured it, I mean, it's, it's, I, mean I am interested in prehistory. I'm interested in archaeology and anthropology. But it's like every page, there's, there's a sort of zinger, and you're thinking, what? How did mm. I? How have I got to this stage in my life and, and not right, know more right. about it? So, if you've ever been to Stonehenge and pondered what the hell was going on, if you've ever thought about, I mean, there's a very simple idea, right? We we have had the same brain more or less for that last two hundred and fifty thousand years. Right. There is this theory that we we didn't start doing anything useful with it until about 70,000 years ago because that's the only stuff that we found. We've only found stuff okay, that that's yeah, old. Yeah, so it's yeah. the old, you know, ever, why would we assume as Jared Diamond, another big theorist, and Yuval Harari, they're kind of, we assume that early, early human beings were living lives of sort of savagery, like sort of, like kind of apes. And yet, why do we think that? It's just a ridiculous thing to think if you think about it. If they, if they had the same brains, why wouldn't why weren't they capable of political thought, of 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 deciding that actually uh, one of the things about farming? Quite often they started farming and then they got bored with it and decided they prefer to go back to a more kind of uh, mixed way of a mixed life of foraging. Mm. The, the world was okay. relatively underpopulated at those times. They were having to deal sometimes with with climate. It's really. The narrative is beautifully done. I'll read you a little bit just to give you a flavour of, of the of the punchy, um, really really well written, amazingly researched. It's, I've got a list of books now. I want to go and read on the back of it. So mm. they're talking about the the modern day Hobbesian, 
would argue, yes, we did live most of our evolutionary history in tiny bands who could get along mainly because they shared a common interest in the survival of their offspring, parental investment, as evolutionary biologists call it. But even those, even these were in no sense founded on equality. There was always in this version some alpha male leader. Hierarchy and domination and cynical self-interest have always been the basis of human society. It's just that collectively, we've learned it's to our advantage to prioritize our long-term interests over our short-term instincts, or better, to create laws that force us to confine our worst impulses to socially useful areas like the economy while forbidding them everywhere else. As the reader can probably detect from our tone, we don't much <laughs> like the choice between these two alternatives. Our objections can be classified into three broad categories. As accounts of the general course of human history, they, one, simply aren't true, two, have dire political implications, and three, make the past needlessly dull. This book is an attempt to begin to tell another more hopeful and more interesting story, one which at the same time takes better account of what the last few decades of research have taught us. Partly, this is a matter of bringing together evidence that has accumulated in archaeology, anthropology and kindred disciplines. Evidence that points towards a completely new account of how human societies developed over roughly the last 30,000 years. Almost all of this research goes against the familiar narrative, but too often the most remarkable discoveries remain confined to the work of specialists or have to be teased out by reading between the lines of scientific publications. To give just a sense of how different the emerging picture is, it is clear now that human societies before the advent of farming were not confined to small egalitarian bands. On the contrary, the world of hunter-gatherers as it existed before the coming of, an ag of agriculture was one of bold social experiments resembling a carnival parade of political forms, far more than it does the drab abstractions of evolutionary theory. Agriculture, in turn, did not mean the inception of private property, nor did it mark an irreversible step towards inequality. In fact, many of the first farming communities were relatively free of ranks and hierarchies. And far from setting class differences in stone, a surprising number of the world's earliest cities were organised on robustly egalitarian lines, with no need for authoritarian rulers, ambitious warrior politicians, or even bossy administrators. <laughs> and so it goes on. Anyway. This I, sounds like leftist propaganda of the <laughs> most outrageous stripe. It makes sense, because you know when you look at people who say, oh, how did they do that, Stonehenge? And how did they do that, yeah. the, you know, the... The Egyptians, how do they build this? Because they're yeah, clever. Like we are you know, clever. Like, like we're know, clever. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, honestly, it's the most refreshing, it's the most refreshing book, uh, history book I've read in a long What's time. What's it called? It's called The Dawn of Everything. Who's it by? And it's by David Graeber and David Wengrow, and it's published by Alan Lane. Very good. Right. Well, listen, well, people are already, people's brains already <laughs> palpitating with the art and <laughs> science they've been pummeled with. Nikki Birch, what's a, what have you been reading over this winter period? Well, I've been reading a very nice uh, German translation uh, called Love in Five Acts by Daniela Krein. Oh, I like that cover. Um, oh, look at that. Beautiful. It's nice, isn't it? Um, and it's a really lovely book. And I suppose I just wanted to talk about it because it was so, it was just such a, I suppose, you know, when you just want to have a book that just makes you forget about everything else and just enjoy reading it. And that's what this book did for me. 
And I, at the end of it, I just looked up who Daniela Crine, and it comes to no surprise to me to know that she's exactly the same age as me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it spoke to you. Uh, oh, it spoke, spoke to me, to yeah, me. Okay. exactly. So if you're Re- a 46-year-old middle-aged grey-haired woman, yeah, you might enjoy that's this. That's everyone who listens to this, so that's fine. <laughs> did you, um, Did you? apart from our seven-year-old listener, did you... Um, oh, Edie, apologies. Is this a new book? Newish, yeah. Yes. So it was published last year, right? Yeah, yeah, it was published last year. It's a translation by someone called Jamie Bullock did the translation. Oh, and lovely Jamie Bullock. Do you know Jamie Bullock? Oh, right. Well, he's done a very good job. <laughs> you can tell he's, him. He is he's good. Very he's good. very good. It's called Love in Five Acts. And I suppose what's so nice about it is it, it, we were talking, I think it might have been on a lock listed, uh, Andy, but we were talking about three women. In, we were indeed. The non-fiction Lisa Tadeo book. And this has a, a very small sort of bear similarities in that and then it's five women and it's a it's fictitious so um but it's talking about love rather than relations but in this case they are all heterosexual love uh so they are all relate about relationships with men so that's the sort of similarities mm. but it is it, it is a novel in the way that three women is non-fiction it, written is non-fiction yeah. but it's written in a similar right, way okay and what's so lovely about it is it's it's a bit like I've read a few Japanese novels when they've been translated and they're lovely and sparse, yeah. mm. you know, and it's got that sort of um, those gaps. Yeah, okay. It, it's very sparse and it doesn't tell you everything. Um, and I really like that. It's, it looks at five women's sort of romantic lives as they move into middle age with all the kind of complexity and baggage that comes with that. And all these women are linked in some way, but there's no kind of conclusive narrative. It doesn't wrap up neatly or anything like that. It's just linked by complexities of being a woman. And, and a woman in Germany... It touches on having a history of having been born in East Germany. But, you know, that's the sort of backdrop. Mm. But it does this really great thing where it jumps about in time. You're never quite sure when they're speaking at what point in time in each of the narratives. But that's kind of, it's okay and it follows it really well. And that kind of adds to that sort of space that it gives it. It's, It's really beautiful. And it's, I think somebody, I read a nice little review that says, that probably does a better job of describing it than me, but um, says, with psychological refinement, Daniela Krein recounts the chaos of feelings and the short half-life of modern ways of living. Nice. And I thought, oh, that's really lovely. Um, um, this is going to be my pedestrian question every time we talk about a book today. Yeah. How long is it? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I'm reduced to. How, how, how long is, uh, is Love in Five Acts? <laughs> It's 249 pages, but there's lovely big spacing between oh, the words. that sounds restful compared with everything we've been talking about. It's really great. Yeah. Can I read you a little bit? Please. So this is Judith, one of the five women. Um, and Judith is more interested in her horse than, uh, than, than dating, but she does go on internet dating sites. Okay. Judith clicks on another message, Judge 52, with photograph. Dear stranger, it will be a pleasure to have the opportunity to invite you for a walk and a coffee afterwards. I was most interested by your profile. Our promising compatibility results leave me hopeful of a positive response. Yours, G.H. Judith looks at his profile. 1.82 metres, non-smoker, two children, none at home, exercises several times per week. How does his perfect day begin? With the woman I love. What is he allergic to? Broken promises and inconsiderateness. Three things that are important to him. My children, my lover, and art. She looks at his picture again. 
14 years of visible age difference. Despite this, she checks her compatibility results with GH. Their gender role balance is exactly the same, both of them scoring 104 points for my masculine side and 109 for my feminine side. For how empathetic are you, the two of them both notch up an above average 118. Judith only gets 85 for adaptability, whereas his score is 109. In the categories willingness to compromise, introversion, generosity and determination, they deviate from each other by no more than three points. She rarely has a result like this. GH gets a message. <laughs> so great. Oh, it's good. Thank Very you. Good. Yeah. So uh, that that's is... Called, uh, Love in Five Acts by Daniela Krein. Very good. So we've covered poetry, history, science, fiction in translation. Get a bonus point mm-hmm. for that. Uh, I've got poetry again. Good. So this is another book that's um, shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize and also is shortlisted for the Forwards Prize for Poetry Collection. It's by a poet called Salima Hill, who is published by Blood Axe, and it's called Men Who Feed Pigeons. Brilliant. And it's quite cha- it's quite challenging to both talk about and read this, only because there should be a lot of space around each very short poem to allow each one to sink in. We don't really have the time to do that. But I can tell you that I've actually read this book twice over Christmas because the first go-round was one of those books that was just the warm-up for the second go-round. Um, this is something like, Salima Hill's 20th collection. She is, uh, I believe she is in her 70s. And um, so she is a veteran and she is prolific. And this is a collection of seven sequences of very short poems. Um, And I'm going to read to you a bit from the third sequence, which is called Billy which is about a relationship, a friendship between a man and a woman, you are left to do quite a lot of thinking about what the circumstances of that friendship might be. But just to say the other um, sequences in this book include, the first one is called The Anaesthetist, which is about men at work. Uh, The second one is called The Beautiful Man with the Unpronounceable Name, which is about somebody else's husband. Biro is about living next door to a mysterious uncle with a dog. I mean, they're so wonderful. They're so, <laughs> and each little sequence is like each poem talks to all the other poems. So to get the full sense of it, you can't really just read one at a time. But I'm going to, but nevertheless, I'm going to read a few of them from Billy, which, as I say, is about um, a friendship between a man and a woman. And I'm just bringing my interpretation here, but I think. Uh, they, the the two friends may have known one another quite a long time and that one of them is becoming ill. That's that's my feeling. I don't know for sure. but So the second poem in the sequence is called What It Feels Like to Talk to Him. And it runs like this. When I talk, it feels like I'm talking to somebody who doesn't speak English, somebody who's new to this country and doesn't understand what's going on. And that's the poem in its entirety, right? <laughs> that's great. So that's the, to keep, I'm going to read it again because, because I want to give the space around it. It's called What It Feels Like to Talk to Him. 
When I talk, it feels like I'm talking to somebody who doesn't speak English, somebody who's new to this country and doesn't understand what's going on. That's it. Okay, so I'm now going to read you a sequence from the middle of the of this, of Billy. I'm going to read you six poems in a row, and I'm just going to... I'm, I'm not going to say anything between them. So you don't have to react to them, guys. You just just let them sit. Okay. First poem is called My Life as a Pair of Crocs. I try to look both earnest and adorable, like surgeons' crocs before they're sprayed with blood. <laughs> the extra-large crab sandwich. He orders me an extra-large crab sandwich I do my best to look pleased to see. I do my best to do what God would do if God exists and if he eats crab. (laughs) The sea. He's sitting with his back to the sea facing the car park in a bobble hat. (laughs) I myself am facing the sea. I thought the sea was the whole point. On the beach. On the beach, he shouts at my dog. I say, don't shout. He buys himself a bun. Kindness. Some of us like to be kind, and some of us are tired and can't be bothered. And finally in this section, (laughs) trolley. He's like a patient propped up on a trolley who doesn't want to know he's going home, who can't or won't respond to the arms trying and failing to help him. What do you think um, them being so short brings to the poems? It makes them endlessly rereadable. It's really fascinating. Mm. Every time Mm. I read through this, even as I've been reading it to you, I've been thinking, that's interesting. That goes with that thing I read read in six pages time or or that in a sense forgive me it's all one poem i mean they're they're Mm. they're tiny tiny cohen like poems but they add up to a bigger thing and the feeling of them and i just end by reading you the last two and the final one is the longest poem i think in this sequence and maybe in the whole book anyway the first one says the hospital at night the patients are adrift on their wards like dust and sugar in the kitchenette. The doctor says, there's no way of knowing which of them will pass away next. Do you want to hear the last one? Go on. It's a bit of a heartbreaker. It's called Kilimanjaro, Kilimanjaro, Kilimanjaro. I ask too many questions. Why is the orange orange? What's that noise? Who is Offer? How can it be shown flamingo lilies purify the air? Who called Kilimanjaro Kilimanjaro? Which is worse, jealousy or envy? Does he agree with the so-called moral relativists that what is right for some is wrong for others? And why do drag queens seem to love the 50s? Macintoshes, shampoo and sets. And by the time I ask him if the doctor has mentioned blepharitis, 
he's asleep. His eyes, already small, look even smaller, defeated, like two pigs in a poke. So that is Salima Hill's collection, Men Who Feed Pigeons. What I thought was interesting to do with this on this backlisted is I very consciously, I'm going to do another collection of poetry before we end. But I thought it was worth saying, you know, these are all shortlisted collections by women. Mm. They're all wildly different from one another Absolutely. because why wouldn't they be? Because they're different yeah. poets writing about different things. And actually, uh, I was a bit anxious about reading the Salima Hill because y- you could so easily rattle past it. But mm. actually, it really sat very happily there as we talked about it. So um, <clears throat> they have that. They have those amazing, almost like imagistic thing, don't they? The, 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 the kind of the, the 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 two or three lines. I mean, I I love short poetry like that. Like they're really, really. They're very English, I would say. Yeah, they're very I mean, uh, sort of almost. You can almost feel a strain of Alan Bennett or Victoria, Victoria Wood yeah. running through them. Yeah, at the same time, they are poetry. Yeah, very they much do so. beautiful. They do land on your brain and stay there. Mm. And the more you read them, like I say, the more they seem to talk to one another. So, uh, yes, yeah, so that's um, published by Blood Axe. That's Salima Hill. Are they presented as poems? Because they're all obviously, as you said, all one poem. Oh, yes. How are they presented yeah, on the page? They're absolutely presented as poems. They're, they're two-line or four-line poems with a title. I mean, mm. that the first section, which, as I said, is called The Anaesthetist, every poem is called... Um, the anaesth- they're arranged in alphabetical order. The anaesthetist. Do they all roll on in a narrative? Yes, but you have to do the work. You have to find your way through. Mm. The anaesthetist, the banker, the care worker, the chauffeur, the childhood sweetheart, the classics teacher. The childhood sweetheart, and then we'll move on, but the childhood sweetheart I've just spotted here. Look, this is just this is brilliant. The childhood sweetheart. Nobody lives here except sheep. We spend the days standing in the river eating slows and freshwater shrimp. He is one, and I the other, gender. Oh. <laughs> so good. Anyway, I really, I, I mean, I recommend all these books, but that's, a, that's, that's such a, an interesting elliptical kind of collection. Uh, Salima Hill, Men Who Feed Pigeons. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. John. Um, what more have you been reading? I've been reading an even bigger book than the last book. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! I'm, I mean, I'm talking. I'm talking. Ep- oh my god! Epic. It's taking oh up the whole screen. Large. 
and I am, I am, where am I? I am two pages in. <laughs> God, no, I'm, it still I'm, a, counts. I'm about it here. Still counts. Yeah, where is it? Yeah, five, I'm, so one of the things about this, this book, the book that I'm holding up, everybody, is a novel, and it is a work of genius. It really, I how many pages is it? It is, <laughs> hey, don't take my question. <laughs> It looks a lot from it's here. It's a lot. I, I, well, one of the one of the curious things about this book is that it's 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 numbered backwards. So you start on page eight hundred and ninety-two. So um, countdown. It, what what is the novel in question? The novel please? in question is uh, is the books of Jacob by Olga Togarchuk, who is um, last year's last year's was it last year or the year before's Nobel Prize. Ah, uh, winner of the Nobel Prize for this. Published by? Published by, in translation, a brilliant translation by Jennifer Croft by um, Fitzcarraldo Editions Fitzcarraldo. in the UK. Okay. Um, I had read uh, her previous book, which was called uh, Flights, which I loved, which was much more contemporary and very Zebaldian. Mm-hmm. This is uh, set in 18th century um Poland and I'm not going to give it a full review because I haven't finished it but it is the most immersive the, the, this this if anything got me through my my covid delirium it was this book oh there's your quote for the cover um <laughs> it's so if you're out there with covid at the moment people <laughs> this is the book to buy all I'm going to do is read you the subtitle because right. it okay. is the most immersive it is as though you are in 18th century Poland in a in, 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 a, in a small provincial town where there are, there's a Jewish community, there's a Catholic community, there's an Orthodox community. It's the smells, the deep... I mean, it's it's like the best of Russian literature, but it's also got this incredibly modern sensibility. I've, I've not read anything... I haven't read anything like this ambitious on this brilliant for a long, long time, I have to say. So I'm I'm going to store up my my breathless superlatives for when I've actually finished You're going to bring this back to the group. I'm going to give you the subtitle because I think it it captures captures a a spirit of the books of Jacob or a fantastic journey across seven borders, five languages and three major religions, not counting the minor sects, told by the dead, supplemented by the author, drawing from a range of books and aided by imagination, the witch being the greatest natural gift of any person, that the wise might have it for a record that my compatriots reflect Laypersons gain some understanding and melancholy souls obtain some slight enjoyment. Isn't that a brilliant dedication? Wow. I am am, am in awe. I don't think I've, as I say, I don't think I've read anything quite as remarkable for a a very long time. And and the translation is flawless. There is a buzz around this novel, isn't there? There is. Our our friend um, Catherine Taylor gave it a, a glowing review. I mean, it's, you know, let's, let's just say it's long. But it's not long. It's one of those books when you're, you know, if you're in that slightly kind of delirious state, fiction is is the most brilliant thing. You know, <laughs> that kind of half half awake, half asleep. Mm. Um, and it's yeah, I'll bring it back and tell you what. what yeah, please. Whether I, so whether, the... I mean, if it can sustain it for the next five hundred pages, <laughs> you're a mere three hundred. A mere three hundred in. in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's called the Books of Jacob, the, and it's uh, right. Olga. Togarchuk, and it's published by Fitzcarraldo, um, and marvelous. It's the book that won her the Nobel Prize. I think is the is the yeah. Gotcha. And what's the and you've got another you've got another um, oh yeah. Um, shall I tell you my my this is a 
Okay, this is a this is a book called The Word Horde, which is a, 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 a basically it's a book about it's a little history of Anglo-Saxon, and it's just if you're interested remotely in language or Anglo-Saxon in in particular, the lives of the Anglo-Saxons, it does it tells you you learn a huge amount by she takes you through the vocabulary for for eating and drinking, for warfare, for religion, <laughs> for sort of you know self knowledge. Who's that by? And it's by Hannah Vidin. Now Hannah Vidin runs the brilliant at OE Word Horde, um, that very popular, mm, yeah. you know, an Anglo-Saxon word a day on Twitter. And that's kind of where the book starts. But I'll read you. Shall I read, shall I read you a tiny Yeah, book? yeah. So listeners who joined us at Beowulf, well, this is one for this them. Is, in fact, in fact, yeah, stand back. <laughs> <laughs> what, oh, really? What Ooh, we gardena hey! in yir argadegum, thayod kiniga, Thrum ye, <laughs> thrum ye frunon, who the ethelingas elen fremedon. Have you still got that kind of chesty stuff from, uh, from COVID? Is there something wrong? So what she says is, it's not obvious how this should be read aloud, let alone what it means. Guesswork is hopeless. Even a rough renunciation guide for these lines is unlikely to help. So and then she goes through um, explaining why it's... Um, you know why it's you, you end up with so we spear days and days gone by great kings of glory heard of how those noble men brave deeds performed that doesn't make much sense grammatically to us but for those speaking it word order wasn't essential unlike middle and modern english old english uses inflection word endings rather than syntax to in, to indicate meaning when we say the cat chased the dog it means something different from the dog chased the cat even though the spelling and form of the words are identical um, the syntax subject verb object tells you who is chasing who and who's being chased. In Old English, as in Latin, you have to look at the word endings, um, ah, as, etc., to get the meaning. Armed with this knowledge, if we were to translate these lines using modern syntax, we'd get something like, so, we have heard about the glory of the Spear Danes, great kings in days gone by, how those noble men performed brave deeds. This not only makes sense, it has the stirring sound of an epic about to begin. Each time a translator tackles Beowulf, and we know about them, they must balance how true they are to the mm. text, how easily their translation is understood by modern readers. And on top of that, every writer has their own literary style, their own unique voice. Reading a new translation of the poem can sometimes feel like reading a new poem. It took us many steps to reach an understanding of these lines, and it would be the same with most other old English texts, whether poems or land charters, sermons or medical remedies. Old English is the language you think you know until you actually hear or see it. <laughs> mm, mm. It may as well be a foreign language to English speakers today. And as with any foreign language, we learn Old English with study, practice, and ideally a good teacher. This book is not like a language primer so much as an old photo album. Old English words are familiar but also strange, like seeing pictures of your parents as children. There's something recognisable in their smiles. But before digging into the more recent family history, blah blah, and then she goes on. And, oh, it's great! So it's Very just a, it, it's really well written, as you know. I, I've I've <laughs> I've done a bit of Anglo-Saxon in my time. Yes, it's a very very superior toilet book, published by Profile. <laughs> I was going to say, what do you buy the man who published Kane's Jawbone at Christmas? <laughs> yeah, it turns out to be this. Uh, okay, so that's the Word Horde by Hannah Vidin. Okay, published by Profile. Well, we're going to hear a poem by, from the third and final collection of poetry I want to talk about, but let's just hear the poem first. 
during the past two years of this pandemic, we've all had perhaps more than we like um, time with ourselves. And even though this poem predates that pandemic experience, I think it might still speak to it. Selfie. Sitting alone in the house, eating my fingernails, watching the sky move away. The room is full, versions of me crouching on the floor, balancing on the windowsill, reclining on the pout of my lower lip, asleep in the crease of my eyelid. Not alone, with myself, a snare I have been running from. I do not live the way humans are supposed to. Compare my face to others you know. I fall short, an embarrassing fringe. No matter what face I try on, it's exhausting. All versions shake our heads. There is much to do until we think we are not what we are. Victoria's. I see those letters written on envelopes I know are for me because of the shape of that word, that greedy V. It's two arms open wide, ready to accept anything. That is Victoria Kenefick reading her poem Selfie from a collection called Eat or We Both Starve. This is her debut collection, slightly mind-blowingly. Um, shortlisted for the Costa and again for the T.S. Eliot. Amazing. How different, right? This is what I mean. How different. They're all on yeah. the same shortlist. How different they all are from one another. And actually, I was so pleased to find that because I'm going to read... Um, and it's good for poetry at the moment, isn't it? It's yeah. Just one of, I'm going to read one of her poems myself and then we're going to hear from another poem by her. But she's such a good reader of her work. This is, this is a really interesting, provocative, rather beautiful and rather disturbing collection about the relationship between Irish history, female identity, and food. Um, and I went into it thinking, what am I going to get from this? And I came out of it thinking, well, like all great poetry, what I got was the sense that I was somebody else. And um, Victoria Kenevick's ability to articulate a way of seeing the world, a, a place and a way of life, seemed to me totally persuasive and surprising, actually. And again, I read this twice because... It took me the first reading to get my head round some of the reference points and then having got them, go back and and dig into them. And again, um, like the previous two collections I've talked about, what I'm fascinated by is, is volumes of poetry that work as volumes in their own right. You know, there is an argument that says you shouldn't do that, that you should, the poem is the atomic element and the poem should be separate. But all the volumes of poetry that I really like work as books and these all work as books. These all are collections whose, which are structured with a view that you would read them through. So I'm doing them something of a disservice today by picking out individual poems. If you want to read them as books, you should read them as books because that's, that's the intention. Isn't it a little bit like albums? You know, if you're just sticking stuff in to, to fill inside too, 
it's probably not going to be a, a you know, the, 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 I, I think that whole idea of, of the shape of a collection is really important. And all I'm, I mean, I'm like you, I've started, I've started to now, I love to go back and read, you know, my favorite poets in the, in their original collections. Cause a, there are quite often, there are quite often poems that don't, that don't make it into selected poems. If they're the kind of writers or that it's just also, there's just a sequencing. You can see that there's been sequ- there's been thought put into the way the poems are, are arranged. Yeah. It's like Nikki, you were asking me about Salima Hill. Are they set out as poems in a sense, all the books are the same that they're, they're all, you could read them all as long poems full of poems. They're, they're, um, the poems speak to one another as they go along. But can you quote them all separately? Well, to... I'm going to read, I'm going to read mm. one and then we're going to hear Victoria reading okay. another one because um, I think there is a real difference between what I'm able to achieve and what she, the author, is able to achieve. But that, you know... I'm cutting myself some slack there. <laughs> I just thought it was really interesting to hear a man read one of these as opposed to a, a woman who is the author read one of them. So this poem is called Choke. I want to hold things in my mouth. A key. Buttons. A fingernail. The click of a boiled sweet against enamel. A toddler, I stole my mother's pills, prized the lid off the bottle with tiny teeth, arranged the capsules by colour and size. My mother panicked when she found me, tablets skittled on the bedspread. At the hospital, the nun held the cup of charcoal to my mouth. I spat black into a white bowl. Its burnt taste, I thought, must be bad. A child, Given a boiled sweet by a cousin, I popped it in my mouth, turned a dainty shade of blue. My father spun me upside down, the sweet shaken loose. In another version, my mother pushes the sweet down my throat with a finger. Or maybe that was when I was three and nearly choked in a different cousin's house, gagging on another boiled sweet. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. My mother's finger down my throat, pushing sugar deep into me. I mean, that seems to me so um, <laughs> um, personal and brave, yeah. that poem, to hand it over to me to read, as it were. Um, that That is really, really striking. If, if, anyway, I were, if I was a listener, Andy, I'd be saying, ooh, I, I got halfway through that and I had to order it. <laughs> well, good. It's such a good. Uh, that sounds amazing. I mean, it is. Get it from the library. Rich, get it from the bookshop. Really, it's all three of these. Poetry. All three of these are brilliant. They're nothing like one another, amazing. and different age groups, different types of poetry, different effects, different concerns. They're all marvelous. Um, could we? Let's hear another one from Victoria herself. This is Victoria Kenefick reading Cork Schoolgirl Considers the GPO, Dublin 2016. Cork Schoolgirl Considers the GPO, Dublin 2016. I'm standing outside the GPO in my school uniform, which isn't ideal. My uniform is the colour of bull's blood. In this year, 
I am 16, a pleasing symmetry because I love history. Have I told you that? It is mine, so I carry it in my rucksack. I love all the men of history sacrificing themselves for Ireland, for me, these rebel Jesuses. I put my finger in the building's bullet holes, poke around in its wounds. I wonder if they feel it, those boys. I hope they do. Their blooming faces pressed flat in the pages of my books. I lick the wall as if it were a stamp. It tastes of bones, this smelly city. Of those boys in uniforms, theirs bloody too. I put my lips to the pillar. I want to kiss them all. And I do. I kiss all those boys goodbye. So good. Brilliant. So there you go. That's... um. That is that collection is called Eat or We Both Starve by Victoria Kenefic. 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 Hmm. Oh, anyway, what a, thanks for bringing us. To God, what a, just really wonderful. I'll tell you what else Garland. about poetry. Garland. Poetry, uh, and like reading, is a solitary pleasure. But as soon as we talk about it, it unpacks it in a different way. Yeah. It's so uh, interesting to have brought those to the to backlisted today. So. Yeah, so all the books are available uh, to borrow from the library or buy from our bookshop, I think. Are they? They probably are, they aren't they? Be. Most of them, yeah. Bookshop.org, you mean? Forward slash backlisted. That is what I'm referring to. The backlisted bookshop on bookshop.org. Yeah. Uh, we can't tell you what the next book is going to be on backlisted, but it's very, very special the one member of the gang. <laughs> and unless you're on our Patreon, in which case we'll be telling you next weekend. So uh, there's still time to sign up for the episode of Locklisted. We'll put it in that. And there might be a little competition in the next Locklisted as well. But uh, we'll save that for then. A quiz. A quiz. <laughs> Locklisted for the uninitiated is us talking about uh, not just books, but um, films and music and stuff like that too. So yeah, go to our Patreon if you want more of this. It's quite like this, really, isn't it? It is. But we've we've got the next several episodes of Batlisted lined up and ready to go. We think you'll be pleased. Yeah. There's some good stuff coming up. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Nikki Birch from Batlisted. Is there anything you want to add? Are there any final matters you wish to bring to listeners' attention? No, I'm just really looking forward to um, beating my uh, number of books that I read last year because I write them all down now since I've started working on <laughs> backlisted. And uh, this year was a bit of a fallow year for me compared to last year, so I need to up my game. Uh, we've ruined your life. Yeah, yeah. sorry about yeah. that. That's excellent. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, go forth and uh, and read. That's what I'm looking forward to and uh, excited to see what books we're going to have in in this year. All right, Andy, John, John, take it away. Um, that is all we have time for. Thank you for listening and for the support you've given us over the past year. You can download all 153 previous episodes of Batlisted. <laughs> I can't every, and one day I'll say this without laughing. It just seems so absurd. Ridiculous. There's 153 episodes. Anyway, you can download all 153 previous episodes, plus follow links, clips, and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook, and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon, as Nikki just said. Uh, www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising. 
Your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early, and for rather less than a Now TV subscription, (laughs) lock listeners get two extra lock listeds a month, the show where we three kick back and share notes on the things we've seen, heard, read, and mostly enjoyed in the previous fortnight. (laughs) Lock listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And this week's batch roll call is Susan Duffy. Thank you. Paul Marshall, Dominic Hartley, Faye Young, Oliver Stanier, Luke Williamson, Vicky Johnson, Matty Tong, the great Una McCormack. The great Una hey. McCormack. Former guest. Well, I mean, former guest. Guest again, I'm Regular sure. guest. Regular, Regular guest. returning guest. Michael Livingston, Anita Ives, Padma, and Deborah Jones. And we're also delighted to welcome Susan Reynolds and Audrey Gaynor to our Guild of Master Storytellers, the highest tier in the backlisted wow. firmament. Thank you Thank both you, for your generosity. And Audrey. And to all our patrons. Huge thanks for enabling the three of us to continue to do what we love and enjoy. And that's it. Uh, thanks, thanks very much, everybody. Yeah. We hope you enjoy every single one of those books we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot All of reading. Three volumes of poetry and two very long books and a novel. And uh, we'll see you on Batlisted next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.